uh, before we get started, I wanted to say, I know that you've been sitting a good bit this morning, and so if you uh, need to stretch out while I'm preaching, you can just pretend that you're really into it and, and stand up and do one of these and, and touch your toes or whatever, and, and nobody will judge you. Uh, so feel free to, to loosen up. Secondly, I wanted to uh, say thank you. I just felt like this was a good time to, to say it. Uh, as I struggled with my allergies this week and, and the text that we're going to uh, examine this morning, uh, we did Easter egg hunt over here yesterday and some other things, and I was just next door in my office looking a little, a little rough and rugged. Uh, not ruggedly handsome, just rugged. And uh, you all came over here and made that happen, and so I wanted to say thank you. Uh, it's good to be at a church where every member is doing ministry. What a joy it is to serve together with you. If you're new to the valley or just new to rockfish, what we typically do here is work through books of the Bible and try to understand what God has said to us there. However, because it's Easter Sunday, uh, we've been taking a vacation from the book of Mark, and we're going to spend our time together this morning in the 23rd chapter of the book of Luke. That's Luke chapter 23. Last week, the USA Today ran an article with the headline, Unrepentant Nazi Murderer Dies, a Free Man at Age 93. The article read as follows. In what a top Nazi hunter calls a terrible failure of the Bavarian judicial authorities, one of Denmark's most wanted Nazis has died a free man at the age of 93. Soren Kam, one of the highest profile Danish Nazis during World War II, was wanted in his homeland for the 1943 kidnap and murder of an anti-Nazi newspaper editor. He fled to Germany after the war, and the country refused to extradite him back to Denmark after he was granted citizenship in 1956. Cam, who died on March 23rd, around two weeks after his wife, according to a death notice, also fought on the Eastern Front and was granted the Knight's Cross Medal by Adolf Hitler in 1945. According to Nazi hunter Ephraim Zorif Kam, I may have pronounced that wrongly, I don't know, he should have finished his miserable life in jail, that's a quote, whether in Denmark or in Germany. Zorif went on to say, Kim was a totally unrepentant Nazi murderer. The anger expressed by Zorif is shared by many. Because it seems as if Kim's sinful actions went unpunished. It seems that this Nazi had escaped justice. So let me ask you this morning, is it possible to escape justice? Our world is broken, it's been fractured since, entered it, since sin entered it through the first man, Adam. And it's continued to splinter through the sin of his progeny, you and I. Indeed, our world is sullied by sin, and death has, is the hallmark of this world. That there's something deep within us all that longs for things to be made right, longs for the broken to be fixed, for restitution to be made. There is within all of us a longing for justice. Can this longing be fulfilled? We're going to try and answer these two questions today. Is it possible to escape justice and can our longing for justice be fulfilled as we consider Luke chapter 23 and the first 25 verses therein? The main idea of the text uh, here today 
is that Jesus doesn't justify himself so that he can justify us. He doesn't justify himself so that he can justify us. We're going to learn that Jesus remains silent in his defense so that he can speak on our behalf. He will allow himself to be bound so that we can go free. And that's our one big thing this morning, that one application that I want you to take with you throughout the week and meditate on as you think about this text. Go free. We're going to work through the text in three parts. The courts, the custom, and the crucifixion. The courts, the custom, and the crucifixion. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning in celebration of your resurrection. Father, if it weren't for the fact of the gospel, we would have no right to come before you. There would be no way for us to worship you. Lord, we are all weak and broken. We all come here as sick people come to a doctor longing for you to make us well. We thank you that by faith you have made us well, made us righteous, made us right with you. You've given us peace and joy. Lord, we ask that you renew renew that joy this morning within us as we renew our covenant together and with you. That's the new covenant that's been made in your blood. Father, help us to hear your word and to obey it. Help me to be the conduit through which you might speak and that we all might hear you and be made more like you as a result. Shape us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. Then the whole company of them, that's the elders of the people, the chief priests and the scribes, arose and brought him, that's Jesus, before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, You have said so. Let's put this in context. Jesus has already endured a betrayal, an illegal arrest, the denial of Peter, a night of illegal judicial proceedings, and a morning of a barely legal criminal trial, out of which the Jewish authorities have decided that the crime he is guilty of is blasphemy against God. He's claimed to be the Messiah. He's claimed to be the Son of God. Now, since the Jewish authorities had no right to exercise capital punishment under the power of Roman authority, they wanted the Romans to execute Jesus. See, they wanted to avoid doing the deed themselves if they could. And that's why they bring Jesus before Pilate. He's the Roman governor, the Roman authority. And he has the power to kill Jesus. And that's their hope. The charges that the Jewish religious leaders bring against Jesus is that he is misleading our nation. That's, he's inciting the people to revolt. Well, that's not really true. If you remember last week, they were all ready to revolt. They had kind of coronated him as their king as he entered into Jerusalem and then looked around and said, all right, let's go home and get some sleep in Bethany. 
It's not true. Secondly, they accuse him of forbidding to give tribute to Caesar. That's not true either. Remember, Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. And lastly, they say, he claims to be the Christ, a king. Well, that one might be true. But why these charges? See, these religious leaders have convicted Jesus of blasphemy. But Rome wouldn't find that an offense that would merit the death penalty. And so they're trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is a political revolutionary. That he's a king that poses a real threat to the Roman Empire. And so we also must ask, why do these guys want Jesus dead? And let me suggest to you one reason. Change. You see, Jesus was a challenge to their teaching and a threat to their status. His right interpretation of the law invalidated many of their man-made traditions and their system of self-justification. The Jewish religious leaders had perverted God's law into a bunch of rules that you keep in order to earn favor with God. Jesus was correcting this wrong. And he taught that no one can keep God's law. I mean, that's the point of the Sermon on the Mount. God's law is way, way, way harder to keep than you ever imagined. You thought it was enough not to kill somebody, but Jesus says if you look at your brother and you have anger in your heart, then you're guilty of murder. You've broken the law. No one can keep it. No one can earn favor with God. Jesus is correcting this wrong. He also goes on to say the big point of the Sermon on the Mount is that If you build your righteousness on religious pretense, you're going to be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand and witnessed its destruction as the rain and the wind and the floods came. See, Jesus taught that salvation had to come from somewhere outside of yourself. He taught that it wasn't the rich that inherited the kingdom of heaven, but the poor in spirits. He taught that only the sick that were willing to go to the doctor could be cured of the sickness of sin. That only those that heard his word, believed in, and followed him could have eternal life. This teaching that people could not justify or save themselves, that people could not make themselves right with God, was at odds with and offensive to the religious establishment. And in fact, I would submit to you It is still at odds with and offensive to all people. I mean, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel says that you're wrong. That your heart is sinful. That apart from a miracle of the God of the universe, you are spiritually dead. Dead in your sins. Not not drowning in the ocean, but at the bottom of the ocean, dead and swollen. Rotting away. Men and women hate to be told they're wrong. I don't like it. They despise being told that they can do nothing to make their situation right. People want to believe, I I think naturally, that they're able to make themselves well. That they're able to prove themselves worthy. That's why every worldview and every religion, aside from Christianity, builds itself on works righteousness, which says, do these things, keep these rules, act this way, and you are good. People want to believe the lie that they can help themselves. But friends, it's for good reason that Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. 
the flesh is no help at all. You cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot save yourself. You need someone else to make you right with God. You need a rescuer. You need Jesus. That's the point of this Christianity thing. The religious leaders, just like the rest of sinful humanity, hate this teaching. Because it means that peace with God, eternal life, is a gift that cannot be earned. They can't take hold of it themselves. This dangerous teaching of Jesus means the religious leaders who have built their whole lives on being more righteous than everyone else need a Savior just like everyone else. The ground is level at the cross. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. All men need grace. So you might be able to see why this is appalling. Jesus' teaching undermined their own. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and the only way to eternal life. Pile that on top of their envy of him, and we can begin to understand why they wanted to kill him. They don't like him. He's changing stuff. Pilate, though, is he's not into their accusations, and he can't find any guilt in Jesus. But he also doesn't want to disappoint the Jews, and so he, he searches for a way to punt on this case. Verse 4, Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate, not wanting to deal with the angry angry Jewish mob, sends Jesus over to Herod, who just so happens to be at Jerusalem because it is the time of the Passover. Verse 8, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod being glad to see Jesus here catches us a little off guard, right? If you remember, he also wanted to kill Jesus. But now he's, he's heard of Jesus' mighty works, and he's hoping to see some kind of display of miraculous power. So he, that's Herod, questioned Jesus at some length. But Jesus made no answer. All the while, the chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing Jesus. All the while, Jesus doesn't say a word. He gives Herod nothing, no signs, no answers. He remains silent. Now, I imagine that this was extremely difficult. Jesus is all-powerful, and yet he sits in the presence of John the Baptist's murderer. John was his cousin and, and like a brother to him. Here he is before John's killer, who is a free man. He remains silent. He takes no action. Imagine part of Jesus wanted justice for John. Yet amidst the hail of accusations and questions, he says nothing. He says nothing because he's set his mind on fulfilling the will of the Father. He will go to the cross. He, as the suffering servant, will fulfill the Scripture, as written by Isaiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus remains silent in defense of himself so that he can speak on our behalf. He will allow himself to be bound so that we can go free. He doesn't justify himself so that he can justify us. Verse 11, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, sent him back to Pilate. To Herod, Jesus appears impotent. Herod and his soldiers make fun of the idea that Jesus is a king, and Jesus doesn't resist. You see, obedience, obedience for Jesus is far more important than comfort or safety. In fact, submission to the will of the Father will require that Jesus give up every comfort and forsake every safety. Obedience for Jesus requires his life. This is an area where the Holy Spirit often has to correct me. I love comfort and safety. For example, I think of how sometimes I don't share the gospel with people because I'm more concerned with my own comfort and their comfort than I am with their salvation. Or I think of how I used to prefer getting comfortable on the couch with a beer and a football game to small group on a Thursday night. Maybe you enjoy comfort too. So you refuse to give up your early morning in order to go to Sunday school, where you're going to be challenged to process, apply, and engage with others about the previous week's sermon. Perhaps you're uncomfortable with not having all the answers, And so you avoid the possibility of being viewed as uneducated by avoiding biblical discussion in your life altogether. Possibly you're in a situation like I was in seminary. You only get one day a week off and it's a Sunday, so you skip church. Scripture's command to be in community and meet together with other Christ followers ends up pushed along with Jesus to the side of your life like garnish on a dinner plate. Submission to the will of the Father required Jesus give up every comfort and forsake every safety. Obedience required his life. A servant is not greater than his master. Submission to God's will requires that you be willing to give up your life to Jesus. Is faithfulness to Christ more important to you than comfort or safety? Your obedience will reveal who or what you love most. What is your life telling you about what you love most? Verse 12, And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate and Herod become friends, I guess, because neither one of them really wants to declare Jesus guilty, and they pat one another on the back by saying, hey, no, you go to Herod. Let Herod deal with it. And Herod's like, no, let Pilate deal with it. And so there is some shoulder rubbing going on. Um, they're just flattering one another, I guess. Verse 13, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I do not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Furthermore, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. 
I will therefore punish and release him. Note, Luke is highlighting for us here Jesus' innocence. You have two witnesses, Pilate and Herod, confirming that Jesus is not guilty. It's kind of neat that Deuteronomy 19 tells us that truth has to be confirmed by the mouth of two witnesses. And here we have two witnesses that aren't really on Jesus' side confirming his innocence. He's not guilty. But hoping to appease the crowd, Pilate offers to make a deal. Listen, listen. I know Jesus isn't guilty, angry Jewish mob. So what do you say? I just have him beaten half to death and we call it even. Everybody goes home happy. To which the Jews respond, half dead is not good enough. We need him fully dead. Pilate seems to want to release Jesus. In Matthew's account, he even gets a text message from his wife telling him to have nothing to do with Jesus. Matthew writes this, Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, that's Pilate, he's sitting there judging, he's being a good, making good use of his adjudicating powers. His wife sent word to him, so his cell phone goes off in his pocket, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Despite Pilate's desire and his wife's counsel to release Jesus, he does not. Pilate's desire to release Jesus is extinguished by his desire to remain governor and to appease the crowd. Can you relate to Pilate? I mean, I can. It's often much easier to go with the flow than to do what is right. Everyone, I think, enjoys being liked. I've never met anyone that said, I really hope you don't like me. Sometimes the, the right thing is unpopular and uncomfortable. It makes me think of uh, a time when I was in college. Uh, I, the Christian group I was a part of had the joy of seeing a young couple come to follow Jesus. They were excited. We were excited. It was, it was an exciting time. However, this couple soon confessed to us that they were living and sleeping together. Let me tell you, it wasn't exactly fun for our leadership to point them to Jesus' teaching on sexuality, marriage, and family. In fact, the couple initially found it offensive. But by the work of the Holy Spirit, they soon decided that obedience to Jesus' teaching was for their good and would result in greater joy than indulging in the temporary pleasures of sin. The guy moved out of the apartment and into a place with some Christian brothers. Others helped to pay for the girl's increased rent until she was able to find a new roommate. And after about a year, the couple moved back in together upon getting married. And they'll both tell you to this day, their decision to abstain from sexual activity and to stop living together until they got married was one of the best they ever made. These situations don't always play out that way. In fact, quite often, they result in really unpopular response. People don't like to be told they're wrong. Typically, they reveal that those who think they are Christ followers actually prefer their sin to Jesus. It results in ill feelings toward Jesus and his church. This couple, though, in this situation, proved that their strongest desire was to love Jesus rather than to satisfy their passions. Their Christianity was bearing fruit. They were living what they confessed. 
What is your strongest desire? What is your greatest love? Is your commitment to Jesus empty? Meaningless? Or is it fruit-bearing? We always act according to our strongest desire. And Pilate's strongest desire was to please the people. His obedience to this desire revealed that his greatest love was not Jesus, was not doing the right thing, but popularity and power. And his decisions resulted in inexplicable evil. Now, if you're observant in your Bible there, you're going to notice a little discrepancy. The verses, those are the little numbers, move from verse 16 to verse 18. What happened to verse 17? Or maybe you have it in brackets there, I don't know. Simply, it doesn't appear in the oldest Greek manuscripts of Luke, which means it's probably added later on by a scribe who thought that it should be included here. Because it is included in Mark 15.6 and Matthew 27.15. So it's true and it's historical, it's in Matthew and Mark, and it's added later into Luke to help give us some context. Now note here, the textual criticism that helps us to understand this possible insertion ought not uh, break apart our faith in the reliability of the Bible, but ought increase our faith in it. It should give us great encouragement about the reliability of the Scriptures Scholars have gone to great lengths to ensure that the word you have before you so reflects the original autographs that it can be rightly called the word of God. So much so that they're going to include something that's in the other, gosp- in the other gospels that helps give us context. They're going to put it in brackets for you and let you know the oldest copies of this doesn't show up there, but it is helpful. Anyhow, to avoid confusion... We're going to borrow from Matthew chapter 27, verses 15 through 17 to help us understand what's about to happen. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? So it's apparently a custom at the Passover feast for the governor to release a prisoner of their choosing. Pilate here is assuming they're going to ask for the release of Jesus. Jesus was a pretty popular guy. Earlier in the week, he had a bunch of people shouting Hosanna and laying down cloaks and putting down palm leaves for for a donkey that he was on to walk upon. People generally like Jesus. But to Pilate's surprise, in verse 18, they, that's the religious leaders in the crowd, all cried out together, Away with this man. Release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt in him deserving death. I'll punish him and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The man for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. 
The man the crowd frees is described as an insurrectionist and a murderer. This is a rebel trying to lead a revolution against Rome. And in the process, he is murdering Romans. This is a notable prisoner. This is a man that is worthy of death. Jesus is no rebel. He's no insurrectionist. He's no revolutionary. He isn't killing anybody. And in fact, he has a a nasty habit of raising people from the dead. Jesus is a worthy man. How was the crowd swayed then to ask for Barabbas? Might I suggest that the religious leaders had propped Barabbas up a little bit. This man is more Messiah than Jesus. At least he had the nerve to try and overcome our oppressors. At least he's picked up the sword against Rome. What has Jesus done? Nothing. I think easily persuaded, the crowd begins to shout alongside the religious leaders, Give us Barabbas. This man, this Jesus, is no Messiah. He's proven himself to be no king and nothing more than a blasphemer. He's not made good on his word. We're still oppressed. He's not overcoming Rome. Give us Barabbas and crucify this wannabe. It's also interesting to note here the meaning of Barabbas' name. It means son of the father. So when Pilate says in Matthew's account, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? It's an interesting question, as MacArthur notes. Do you want this man, the human son of the Father? Or the divine son of the Father? You want the son of the Father or the human son of the Father? We reject the holy son of the Father. We'll take the criminal son. Kill the prince of life. Give us a murderer. Kill the most magnificent person who ever lived and give us a plundering terrorist. Barabbas' sinful actions seem to go unpunished. It seems as if he has escaped justice. He goes free. Barabbas, the guilty son of the father, goes free while the true and innocent son of the father goes to the cross. This is the will of sinful humanity on display. We try to eliminate anyone or anything that might keep us from following our dead hearts, including God. Apart from a miracle of God, we desire to kill Him. We shout at Him. No one can tell me how to live my life. No one can determine who I am. I'm the captain of my soul. I'm the Lord of my life. I will not change. Crucify Him is the chant that echoes in the lifeless heart. Crucify Him is the rally cry of our rebellion against our Creator. Matthew even records these words among those in the crowd. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. The people are using this idiom to say, let us be held responsible for Jesus' death. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas, his disciple, condemned by his own people, denied by Peter, deserted by his closest friends, spit on by sinners, and bloodied by Romans. Everything is happening according to plan. Jesus gives himself over to the evil desires of the people 
so that the Father's will to use their evil for good might be accomplished. He heads to the place of the skull with two criminals. Verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Drop down to verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last for now. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Here is the beautiful irony, my friends. Jesus can say, Father, forgive them, because he knows that his blood cleanses. Paul writes for us in Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And in Romans 5, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Apart from Jesus, we're dead in our sins. We're enemies of God. Yet, while we act as God's enemies, Jesus acts to save us. He acts to save his enemies. Those that shouted, crucify him. His blood be on us and our children. They meant to say, treat us according to our guilt. But Jesus has redeemed even that phrase. So that now his followers, you and I cry out, his blood be on us and our children. Let God treat us according to Jesus' innocence rather than our guilt. His blood cleanses. The story's not done yet, though. Jesus proves his person and his work by raising from the dead, chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They were perplexed about this. And behold, two men stood before them in dazzling apparel. They were pretty afraid. And they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Jesus, in a historically verifiable way, rose from the dead. This is the most plausible explanation for the empty tomb and the spread of Christianity. Now quickly, for for those of you that, that are here because it's Easter, And going to church is what you do on Easter. Maybe it's the only way to get a decent lunch from your mother-in-law. I don't know. I want you to hear that when, when Christians say Jesus rose from the dead, 
We're not just making a theological claim. We're not just making a spiritual claim. We're making a a historically verifiable claim. You've got to deal with Jesus. You should at least want to. I mean, he lived, he claimed to be God, was killed for that claim, and then he rose from the dead. Shouldn't you at least consider this? I mean, Romans know when people are dead. That's what they did. And if he stayed dead, why didn't the Jews or Rome produce his body when his followers and hundreds of others claimed he had risen and started causing problems? I mean, if he stayed dead, why would his disciples die for him? I mean, certainly, certainly men will die for convictions, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone willing to die for a concoction. Who would die for what they know to be a lie? There's much more to be said about this, but it would stray from my purpose here. So let me direct you to N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. Pick it up if you have doubts. be very helpful in terms of verifying for you the resurrection of Jesus historically. That's N.T. Wright in the book's titled The Resurrection of the Son of God. The point here is that Jesus gave himself into the hands of men to be killed for your sins and to rise as the first fruit of the new creation so that by faith in him you might also die to sin and live to righteousness as a new creation. Now you might ask, how how is it that Jesus' blood cleanses us? How is it just for our sin to go unpunished? Simple. Our sin does not go unpunished. Jesus trades places with us and sheds his blood so that we don't have to. You see, you are Barabbas. I am Barabbas. We are Barabbas. We are sons and daughters of the Father that have rebelled against him by choosing to follow our hearts rather than his word. We are insurrectionists and murderers. Yet we go free because our sin has been dealt with on the cross. As Robert Smith has said, it wasn't two, but three thieves who died on Calvary. The one in the middle also took something that didn't belong to him. My sin. Jesus takes your sin. There's a great exchange between Jesus and his followers. He takes their guilt and they take his righteousness. Jesus frees us from evil's chains. He takes the grave so that he might free us from it. Friend, he took hell so that you could have heaven. He became a curse so that you could enjoy the promise of life together with God. Jesus has freed you from death's grip. You need only follow him to go free. Jesus didn't justify himself so that he could justify you and I. So we return to our question. Is it possible to escape justice? No. All sin has been punished in Jesus or will be punished upon his return. God judges rightly and deals with sin. The bigger question is, will he judge you according to what you deserve, what your sin has earned, or according to what Jesus deserves? Will you trust in your self-righteousness? Believe me, that's a losing bet. Or Jesus' righteousness? Our longing for justice will only be fulfilled when Jesus returns, adjudicates properly, and makes all things new. Church, our Lord is risen. 
He reigns. He is building His kingdom. And He will return. Let us rejoice in His saving work this morning. And together pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we confess our desperate condition. All of us are guilty of trying to live our lives according to our way and our wants and our desires rather than according to your perfect plan and design for life. All of us are guilty of trying to build our identity on things other than you. All of us are guilty of worshiping and loving stuff that's been created more than we love you. Forgive us. Forgive us. Father, let your blood be upon us and on our children. Cleanse us. Thank you for being our substitute on the cross. Thank you for living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died. Thank you for the good news of the gospel that we are more wicked than we ever dared dream and yet at the same time more loved than we ever dared hope. Thank you for the riches you have given to us in Christ. Thank you for uniting us with Him so that all that is Christ is ours. All things, Lord. We are great people of privilege. We get to be called sons and daughters of God. Lord, thank you for adopting us. Thank you for allowing us the privilege of calling you Father. Let us never forget the cross. Let us never forget the resurrection. Let us look forward to your return. And Lord, as saints around us die, help us to remember that they are being planted, and that they will be raised up like plants upon your return. Let us look forward to being made new. We are a new creation in you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Let us experience your touch and your presence in a new way this week. We ask it in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.